Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. This evening we are looking at Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Fours, Sutta 88. And it's there's a few that are similar, but the one we're going to look at is number 88, the Sangyojana Sutta. In these suttas, the Buddha talks about four types of people. In fact, it's specifically four types of samana. A samana is a, it's a word used to describe an ascetic, someone who lives off in the forest, someone who leaves the world behind to cultivate spiritual practice. A shaman is probably where that word came from. Shramana in Sanskrit, Samana, Samana in Pali. So the the Buddha has these somewhat peculiar labels for each of the four types of Samana. And, of course, the, the Buddha's use of the word, as with many words, is somewhat different from uh, the, the established meaning of the word. So, for the Buddha, samana is someone whose mind, mana, is peaceful, santi. Santimana, santimano samano. Has a peaceful mind. Santamano, maybe? Santamano. Yeah. Mind that is peaceful. Meaning, you don't have to go off into the woods, you don't have to put on robes, you don't have to take up ascetic practice. Wherever you live, whether it be in the city or the country or the forest or a mountain, if your mind is uh, tranquilized, you're a samana. Or if your mind is purified, might be a better way of looking at this, because this doesn't refer to people who practice tranquility meditation. Just because your mind is tranquil uh, doesn't make you a samana in Buddhism. But the peculiar t titles are samana, samana, samana machalo, which means a recluse that is unshaken. Samana Pundariko, an ascetic who is a white lotus. Samana Padumo, an ascetic who is a red lotus. And Samane su Samana Sukumalo. One who is among among recluses, among samana, is the the most delicate sukumalo of samanas, most refined, of the ultimate in the refinement of recluseship or spiritual practice. 
So we have the unshaken, we have the white lotus, the red uh, red lotus, or did I say blue lotus? I think it's... Uh, red lotus. Hmm. Actually it might be any color, a different type, type of lotus. Maybe the lily and the lotus. They're the same thing. There are different kinds of lotus. And then the most refined of all of all spiritual samanas. So why this why this sort of odd set of titles is of interest to us is because it actually is in this sutta it describes the four stages of enlightenment, which are quite interest quite of interest to uh, us as meditators so if you haven't heard of these I mean this is something that all Buddhist meditators should know about that there are four uh, recluses in this way or four samana four spiritual beings four levels of spiritual beings spirituality gives us an understanding also of the uh, the order in which our spiritual practice goes, kind of like a road map. The first things for us, the first unwholesome qualities for us to free ourselves from. The first fetters. This is the Sangyojana Sutta. Sangyojana means fetter. So this describes the ten fetters and the order in which they are abandoned. So first of all, the four types of spiritual being, the first one is called a sotapanna, a sotapanna, sotapanna. A sotapanna is one who has entered the stream, sota. And they're, in this sutta they're called the one who is unshaken. And that's what entering the stream means. It means you, you're, you're in, you're on the path. There's no question of where you're headed. You're headed in one direction, and that, that direction is enlightenment, full enlightenment, Nibbāna. A sotapanna is, is the first, first moment where one can say, from that point on, one is uh, guaranteed their direction is certain. There's no chance for them to head in another direction. That's why they're called a sotapanna. And unshaken is, is the meaning there. So the Buddha says, samana manchalo, someone who is a samana who is unshaken. Because up until that point, all of our vipassana practice is for, uh, is, is mundane. It's only temporary. If you stop practicing, it potentially disappears. You revert back to your old ways. Probably not exactly like that, but you can return to um, ordinary ways because the insight is not yet penetrating. It doesn't yet penetrate the whole mass of ignorance. And 
the Sotapanna does away with three fetters. So bear with me, we have this first level, there's four of them. The first level does away with three fetters. These are three things that a Sotapanna does away with. And these are, so these are sort of the first things that you might want to look to free yourself from, even before you attain Sotapanna, because they're the first things to go. The first one is Sakayaditi, view of self. Any views that this is self, that uh, this body is self, this mind is self, that there is a soul, all those views have to go out the window. Even just this, the, the general view that things exist doesn't mean you don't see things as, as things, people, possessions, objects, and so on. But you don't have a view that they exist in reality in reality you see that everything you know, what really exists is simply things that arise and cease moments of experience that's what makes up reality the second one is silabata uh, paramasa which means practices and precepts which are outside of the path. So a sotapanna does away with any kind of idea of the rightness of practices that are not right. So one doesn't, one doesn't mistake practices that are useless as being necessary, or even practices that are useful but not necessary as being necessary. A sotapanna knows what is necessary and what is unnecessary, both with practices and with precepts. Precepts means refraining from things, so sometimes even Buddhists will refrain from certain practices, like not touching money, for example. Monks aren't allowed to touch money, but it's possible to mistake that as being a necessary part of the path, that anyone who touches money can't become enlightened, that kind of thing. I've heard there's a, a group of, of Buddhists in Burma who believe that, uh, or I've heard, you know, it may or may not be, but I, this, what I've heard is that they believe that you need to remember past lives before you can become enlightened. It may be just that they require their students to remember past lives before they become enlightened, but it is possible that some people have this view that magical powers are necessary before you can, be, can become enlightened. So that again is a form of Siddhabhata Paramasa. In a sense, I mean, it may not be technically, but it's a misunderstanding of what is necessary and unnecessary. But certainly clinging to practices like nudity or self-torture, the Sotabhana cannot do, because they've seen the true path. They've seen the, the, the goal, so they know what path leads to the goal. And the third one is Vichikicha, meaning having doubt about the Dhamma, doubt about the path. Sotapanna can't have doubt. They, they've seen, they've they verified the practice for themselves. They've come to, re they've reached the goal of the practice. There's no question to, in their mind of whether the practice is valid and beneficial and, and actually leads to the goal that it claims to. No doubt in the enlightenment of someone who teaches these things, of the Buddha, 
this kind of thing, or those who have become enlightened afterwards, no doubt who is, what it truly means to be enlightened. Such a person is called a sotapanna, and they're, well, they're really called a sotapanna because they've seen Nibbana, but because they've seen Nibbana for the first time, all of these are also true about them. The second type of person is called the Samana Pundariko, the, the white lotus ascetic, or the white lotus Samana. This is a, the definition or the description of a Sakadagami. A Sakadagami is, so a Sotapanna might be born, according to the teachings, might be born up to seven times. They can't be born an eighth time. Not sure why, but that's the limit. Maximum seven times. Now, for many sotapanna, they'll become enlightened before seven lifetimes, but that's the limit. Now, a sakadagami is someone who has become a sotapanna, but then they've continued to see nibbana through their practice. They've cultivated the states necessary and entered into the cessation of, of suffering um, repeatedly to the point where they know they lose or they weaken their attachment to to the world significantly to the point where they will only be re they will only be reborn one more time a sakada saeka saekada one time they have only one time of coming back Uh, so this is the second type, and this this the Buddha for some reason called a white lotus ascetic. It's just his name for the, the Sakadagami. Now Sakadagami hasn't actually destroyed anything further, but they've weakened. So so they'll only be born one more time. That's sort of a milestone. The third type, the red lotus ascetic, or the Samana Paduma, like a Paduma lotus someone who has gone further so they've continued to practice and through their practice they've come to see Nibbana again and again to the point where they're able to uh, weaken and finally destroy all vestiges of Kama, Kama Raga and Patika lust for sensuality and aversion so the greed and aversion in relation to the objects of the sense. So they've come to see peace and they've come to tranquilize and, and purify their mind to the point where these the, the objects of the sense no longer have any uh, hold any pleasure for them. They're able to see through the, the illusion of, of happiness. Uh, this this thirst that only cultivates further thirst. They're able to see through it, give it up. And likewise with aversion, so they're able to see the, the uselessness of anger, frustration, hatred, and aversion of any sort. It doesn't actually get rid of the things that you don't like. It just makes you dislike them more. It makes you suffer more when they come.
So this type of person is called an anagami. Anagami means they'll never come again. They can never come back to this this earth. They can never come back to the sensual world. Now it doesn't mean they'll they'll not be reborn. There actually is apparently a set of spiritual realms for one who is so pure, but who still has some uh, we would call impurity in the mind. So they've gotten rid of all five of these things: the first three, and then desire and aversion towards sens sensuality. Got rid of all that. But there's still some attachment to existence, and so they are reborn again. Just not in the world; they're born in a in a in a spiritual realm called the Sudavasa, the pure abode. Their mind is so pure and, and, and set and fixed in such purity that they cannot possibly be reborn again in this world or in, in, in any of the lower realms. They're born in very special realms, the pure abodes. That's the red lotus ascetic or the, the anagami. Now the fourth one is called the pinnacle, you know, the most refined of all in all in all spiritual beings the most refined spiritual being and if this person the, this person the Buddha describes as that's a lot but it's a really good good sentence to understand. Bhikkhu, a bhikkhu, a, a person who practices to free themselves from suffering. Asavanankaya, with the uh, destruction of the defilements. Anasavang, cetuvimutting, panyavimutting. They diteva dhamme sayang abhinya. They have seen for themselves, or they have seen for themselves higher knowledge in the here and now for themselves of uh, liberation of mind, jetu vimutti, and liberation of wisdom. So jetu vimutti is for samatha practice, or their their mind is fully, it means their mind is uh, fully tranquilized. And panya vimutti means they have perfect wisdom. Upasampanjaviharati, they dwell having given rise to that. So this is referring to the Arahant. The Buddha was an Arahant and all of his many fully enlightened followers were all called Arahants. And so they've done away with ten fetters, the first five and there are five more. And this is interesting because it, it means that until we get to the point of an anagami, we're still going to have these other five fetters. So don't be discouraged if you still have some... I mean, even don't even be discouraged too much if you still have greed and aversion, because even a sotapanna has them. The beginning is to overcome wrong view and to understand that, that uh, well, you might give in to your attachments and your aversions. You have no sense that they are beneficial, uh, no sense that there's any rightness to them. It's just a, an addiction or a habit of liking and disliking things that 
can work on. But for an arahant, so after being an anagami, you get rid of five, but an arahant gets rid of five more. So even an anagami has a rupa raga. This means desire for um, formless, form becoming, form becoming and formless becoming. This means um, becoming something physical or concrete and becoming something immaterial. So these kinds, of, there, there can be desire to become something, to be reborn. But because there's, because there's no aversion, or uh, sorry, no, no sensual desire, um, even an anagami will, will, will have these desire to be born, but they'll only be reborn in a pure place. Now an arahant has no desire to be reborn at all not in a realm of form, with form, not in a realm that is just purely mental. So as a result, when they pass away, there's no more rebirth. There's no more birth, no more becoming. It's not rebirth. Rebirth is really probably a bad word to use. There's no more birth. Kinajati. Birth is destroyed, done away with. So these two, um, the, thir the third one is called, uh, let's say mana, I don't remember the order, but mana is the next one, so conceit. Even an anagami has conceit. Conceit is thinking you're better than people, thinking you're worse than others, thinking you're equal to someone else, holding yourself up, estimating yourself, self-esteem. Self-esteem, whether it high, be high or low or even middle, middling, is conceit. And it's a problem because it creates the idea of not of a, not exactly of a self, but a sense of selfness. It creates expectations. It creates attachment. It creates um, delusions, arrogance. All this comes from conceit. It's not not really a very pleasant emotion leads you to be unfair to others, it leads you to be uncivil, unfriendly, leads you to hurt others, even without greed or anger you still hurt them through conceit, and condescension and all that, oppression. So an arahant does away with this. An arahant does no conceit, no, no, no feeling of themselves being better or worse or even equal to anyone else whether they are or not. Uh, the fourth one is called udacca. Udacca means distraction. Udacca is the mind that is distracted. So even an anagami, all the way through to the third type of, the third level of enlightenment, one can still become distracted, which is why we don't put too much emphasis on trying to calm the mind or stop the thoughts from coming. Thoughts aren't really the problem. The problem is our understanding of the thoughts. We think of them as bad or good, or we, we get caught up in them as being good or bad. That's really the problem. So we try to just see the thoughts as thoughts for this reason, because it's going to be a long time before our stray thoughts truly cease. An arahant has no more stray thoughts. Their thoughts arise, and they don't get caught up in them. They don't get lost in the thoughts. They still think, but thoughts are just thoughts because they're per perfectly mindful. And the fifth one is ignorance. So 
So an arahant has no ignorance specifically about things that are important, the Four Noble Truths. An arahant has no, no misunderstanding, no ignorance. They have seen everything. They've come to see, and not just everything, but they've seen, in regards to the Four Noble Truths, they've seen perfectly clearly so that there's no chance for them to cling to anything. And they have n there's no potential for them to cling to even in even the slightest um, even the slightest bit because they have no ignorance absolutely none they are they are fully cognizant fully and completely wise to the nature of those things that cause us suffering and so they no longer cling to or fuss with, fuss about anything, no more desire, no more anger, no more delusion of any sort perfect wisdom this is the this is the fourth level of enlightenment, these four are, are a very important part of Buddhism something that we should all at least be aware of but this last one the Buddha called the most refined of all spiritual practitioners Samana. So, thought it was worth stopping there. I've been skipping ahead, but this is one set of dhammas in the Book of Fours that we should all know about. For those of us that don't know about them, and it's useful for meditators to get an idea of the roadmap. We may not get to even the first one for you know, days, weeks, months, years, lifetimes, but we know where we're headed. And so that's a useful Dhamma for us to know. And there you go, that's our Dhamma for this evening. Let's move on to some questions. Hi, Bhante, how is my audio? Good. Yeah. Okay. Good. What would you call a simple life for people who want to follow the Buddhist path in normal life rather than being a monk? What would I? Sorry. What would I? What would you call a simple life for people who want to follow the Buddhist path in normal life rather than being a monk? Awesome. <laughs> Perfectly valid. Good. Um, Honorable, respectworthy. Is that also considered anagarika? An anagarika means someone who has left home. Ah, an, okay. an agara is a home, so anagara is no home. Ika means, it comes from nika, which means one who has. So you put nika on the end of anything, the end disappears, it becomes anagarika. Ah, okay. It's a specific term one who has left home. It was the first Anagarika, I think, I don't know if the word was ever used before that, but in modern times, and he was Dhammapala, I think he was the first. Anyway, he was one. He was crippled. He couldn't become a monk because he was he was lame in one, one foot, I think. And uh, so he became an Anagarika because the, the monk rural state, because of the burden they would place on the monastic community, a cripple, a person who is crippled can't become a monk. So instead he became an Anagarika, and he started this idea of becoming an Anagarika, I think. I don't know. 
I don't know that there was such a term before that, but he kept eight precepts, I think, like a Mechi in Thailand or a, a Yichi in Cambodia. I don't know what they call them in Burma. They have a word for it. I used to know. Hello, Bhante. I finished the online course five months ago. I still do the walking meditation like you taught me. I try to do at least one 30-minute sitting session like I've learned during the course, but most of my practice is based on the meditation you've described in the booklet. Helps me stay more mindful during the day. Would you recommend during sitting meditation like we learned during the course it is, as it is more challenging, or can we do both? Thank you. I think the practice in the booklet is, if you finish the course, is probably a little bit simple. I would recommend a minimum third walking step, and rising, falling, sitting, if you've already been through the course. You can. You're welcome to do whatever you want. I mean, it, it can depend on your, your level of mindfulness and concentration, but you do want a bit of a challenge. So I would recommend third walking step and rising, falling, sitting, and if you get more into it, then you can increase again from there. Almost always while, when doing sitting meditation, when thoughts arise, they simply creep in. And I only note that after the feeling or the thought already took over and I realized I was thinking. I guess my question is, how fast should you be able to perceive your own unbalance? Is that any factor at all? because I feel like I lost something not being able to grasp it when it occurs as if the natural observation of myself is still artificial well it's still in its infancy so absolutely you'll start to catch things earlier and eventually you'll be able to catch things just when they start but you can't force that I mean what you're also seeing is non-self that you're not in control you can't just suddenly become enlightened and say hey I want to do this properly it doesn't work that way the only thing you can do is like you're, you're in a car barreling down the road at high speed, all you can do is slowly turn and break. And you can't just suddenly go the other way. Inertia. So um, you're chipping away at it, basically. In the beginning, you're just chipping away. When you can get it, way at the end, after, after it's already taken over, then you catch it. But as you do it, of course, it isn't static. It's a thing that meditators have to realize is that no matter how discouraging it might be, your practice is not static. If you're doing good work, you will see results. You have to have some faith in that, because you won't see it. Right now, you only see now, right? And if you think, oh, this is terrible, this meditation sucks, but you know, it's something that takes time. You'll never see progress in the present moment. You'll only see, you'll only see the, the, the success in that moment. Hmm. But over time, you'll start to see progress, and you have to remind yourself of that sometimes. It's not static. You're doing work, and you will get better at it. So if you're working to try to catch it as soon as you can, you'll slowly be able to catch it quicker and quicker. Are Arahants incapable of perceiving concepts? No. But you're still coming at me with all these theoretical questions. Not so interested in. Sometimes I have an experience where I look at an object and it seems like a bunch of unrelated parts. 
Also, sometimes my 3D perception of things sometimes seems strange. 3D objects seem flat. I see myself trying to force these experiences to arise. Should I stop doing that? I know the answer is probably yes, but I still want to go ask. Trying, you actually see yourself trying to force them, then there'd be a wanting, and you'd have to note that. You know, if, you ex if you feel that, or you say feeling, or if you think, if you experience an awareness that is strange, you have to say feeling, feeling, or knowing, knowing. You absolutely should stop doing that. You're, you're, you're given, in this tradition, you're given specific instructions, and if you're doing anything else, you're doing it wrong. Now, you know, there's many things you're going to do unconsciously or out of habit, that's fine. But if you're consciously trying to bring, give rise to anything else, then it's not proper. The cat started kneading my lap today. It was hugely irritating. I tried saying annoyed, annoyed, then got a headache, so I went to pain, pain, interspersed with tension, tension, then tried just feeling, feeling. But my mind kept coming back to getting more and more annoyed until finally I shoved him off me. I understand from what you say I shouldn't concentrate on this feeling for too long, but I don't understand how you cannot concentrate on it when it's the uppermost object in your mind. The same with pain. If the pain is the uppermost thing in your mind and it continues for a long time, how do you not spend too much time on it? It's not that you don't spend too much time on it, you just don't go, don't hop from one thing to the next. If you say annoyed, 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 and it goes away, try to come back to the rising and falling once it goes away, but stay with it. If it's prevalent, absolutely stay with the annoyance. You're not trying to make it go away. But if and, if and when it does go away, try to come right away back to the rising falling. Don't let your mind go on to something else. But if there is the headache, well, then you can note that, say pain, pain. Uh, pain, I wouldn't intersperse it with anything, but if the pain goes away, try to come back again. If there's something else, you know, you can, of course, you know everything, but whenever you can, try to come back so that you're not jumping and you're not anticipating or looking for it. It gets to be problematic if you jump from one thing to another. That's, that's what I was on about. Stay with one thing for as long as it lasts, absolutely, especially if it's intense like that. I'm feeling discouraged with my progress. At what stage during your residential meditation courses do people generally feel they have made progress? Is the first week the hardest? By the third week, what sort of progress can they generally realize? I would say there's feelings of progress throughout. The middle part might be the hardest because it's a long, arduous dragging yourself through a lot of unpleasant stuff but in general the residential course gives great benefits um, I mean though th I've talked a lot about this whole thing about progress and it's somewhat misleading you know if you're constantly looking for progress you're not likely going to find it I mean the progress that we find you'll find progress over the long term but it's not a linear thing. Your mind is going to go up and down. You're going to get into good states and bad states. The only real way to overcome this doubt that you have, or discouragement, obviously besides noting it, doubting, doubting, discouraged, you'll see when you do that it goes away. 
but but also to reassure yourself based on the nature of your experience. You know, it's easy to work yourself into a tizzy of doubt and discouragement irrationally, when in fact what you're doing is so pure and so perfect and actually changes the whole framework of your mind in that moment. Now the long-term benefits, it's too sketchy to really rely upon because what are you going to... What are you going to what is going to be the object of that reflection when you reflect, am I getting better, am I getting worse? Yeah, over the long term of you know, uh, having done lots of meditation, you'll slowly start to see change. But it's but you'll only see that sometimes. Sometimes it'll feel like things are getting worse. You don't know where you're going. What you have to get through your mind is the the truth of what we call karma, that good things have good results, and so you don't have to worry about the results. In Buddhism, in terms of karma, we never worry about the results or concern ourselves, what am I going to get? And we shouldn't do that with meditation either. It's not about what you get out of meditation, it's about what you're putting in. What, are, what is your state of mind now? Are you full of, are you cultivating habits of addiction and aversion and delusion? Or are you cultivating habits of clarity and objectivity and wisdom? So it's in that moment, the real true benefit of the practice, what you should rely upon to give you confidence, is the quality of the mind when you're mindful, the stability, the, the um, invincibility of it. You can't be moved by things like anger and, and discouragement and so on. Like when you say to yourself, discouraged, discouraged, you'll find it disappears. And you see it's actually a a positive influence on your mind because all that discouragement would lead you to a very bad place if you're not mindful of it. But once you're mindful of it, you don't fall, you don't go down that road. So there you go. There's a benefit of the practice. The whole idea of looking for progress, I think it's a red herring for the most part. In general, it's a red herring. It's not something I would obsess about ever. It's not useful. What are you going to do, sit there and gloat once, you've, once you feel like you've got progress? What good would it do to feel like you're having progress? You say, confidence. Well, that's not confidence. Confidence is when you say to yourself, doubting, doubting, and the doubt goes away. That's confidence. Confidence is in the present moment. It's based on wisdom and understanding. Not, ooh, I'm getting better, I'm a better person. That's weak. It doesn't last. It doesn't really help you too much. Yeah, it can be encouraging, but it's it's not it's not what I would rely upon. So that's what I have to say about that. When the enlightened stop being reincarnated, does the mind become unified with the oneness, or does it just cease existing? And is there a difference? There is no mind of the sort that you are referring to. So it never existed in the first place mind is just an ex a, a description of an arisen phenomenon that lasts a moment of experience and then disappears. Bande, can a Sotapanna have Sanya and Chitta Vipassala of all four types? Nicha, Sukha, Atta, Subha? I think so. If there is no self, who is responsible for karma? No one's responsible for karma. Karma is an action. 
Karma describes a it actually describes a specific mind state that has certain consequences. You say for who? Well, it's just a word. It doesn't really mean consequences, but there are certain mind states that arise as a result of it. If you study Abhidhamma, you get an idea. Certain mind states having arisen um, cause other mind states to arise. Now, this whole idea there is no self is really uh, a red herring. It's not how you should think. Buddhism doesn't really... Uh, my, arg my feeling is that the Buddha didn't really talk about such things. He wasn't interested in such things. And he didn't consider it valuable or useful to look at the world in terms of whether there could be a self or wouldn't be a self. A lot of Buddhists say the Buddha said there isn't a self. I think he didn't ever say that, and there's a reason why he didn't ever say that, because it's the wrong way of looking at the world. Um, reality is experiential-based, so experiences arise and cease. Now, they are related, and there appears to be um, the ability to choose to train, right? If there wasn't, then it would all be deterministic and you couldn't become enlightened. But um, there's no sense of there being a self or, or, or even not being a self. There's a sense of experiences, and experiences just arise and cease. And they come and they go. So each one of them is not self. That's really more to the point. The Buddha was trying to point out that these things that we cling to as stable, satisfying, and self are actually unstable, unsatisfying, and there's no reason to think of them as self because they arise and cease. That's the Buddha's teaching on non-self. That's really where your mind should be. And that's it. Don't, have, don't worry about such philosophical, ar philosophical arguments about who is responsible for karma, yada, yada. Not really useful. Sir, during sitting meditation, I find myself stooping over a period of time. I think my back really bends. Should I correct it from time to time? Mostly bending, it doesn't bother me. I can still feel the rising and falling. But my mind keeps telling me I should have a straight back. I'll sprain myself, etc. It's generally um, recommended to try to have a straight back, but it's not required. You're going to come into pain either way. If, if there's pain in the back, you'll have pain either either way. You won't sprain your back. Um, I think things like tension, if you're tense and stressed, that has that does a number on your back. But simply slouching, it would probably change your back over time, so you get bad posture, right? But I have yet to hear that bad posture is actually unhealthy for you. So it's not something I would worry about. The Buddha recommended sitting with a straight back. It's actually the Buddha's words himself, but in terms of satipatthana and vipassana, it's whatever position your body is in, that you're mindful in that position, of that position. That's all. You're all caught up on questions, Bhante. Good. Those were some good questions, I think. Yeah. Not that they're not every night, but... Uh, well, now there are guidelines on the questions, so maybe that's maybe that's helping. No, they're usually. I mean, we usually get good questions. That's true. Sometimes true. some a little bit, but I think we'll cut out some of the the, the more unanswerable questions. Okay. Well, thanks everyone. Thank you, Robin, for your help. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Bob. Thank you.